Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome back to this week's episode. This is Jacqueline here. Um, I'm here with Long Long and Daniel. Today, we have um, a very, you know, uh, anticipated guest. And uh, we've been wanting to speak with him ever since I was introduced to him and his brand. And I'm sure that you'll very much enjoy listening to his creative story and his background. So he is the founder of Bernard Hall and also the creative director at Breitling. So you're a man who wears many, many hats. But for this um, specific episode, we are going to be talking about your namesake brand. So welcome to the podcast, Sylvan. Hi, Long Long. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Jacqueline. Uh, I'm a frequent listener of the show, so I feel very privileged to be your guest today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So when we, um, so we, I'll just tell a little bit background story of how we got connected, uh, you and I, um, I believe we first started messaging each other and, and talking over Instagram over the summer. And I mm-hmm. was introduced to Bernard through, um, uh, another Instagram, uh, fellow watch collector. And he said, if you have time, you need to talk to this guy and you will not regret it. If you uh, are not impressed, I will send you a strap. I think we were talking about straps because I am I have a strap problem, obviously. And uh, this was before I reached out to you. And I said, okay, send me a strap. And I think he's like, <laughs> but then I said, no, I'm just joking. I messaged, I, I messaged uh, you and then uh, we had arranged it time to call so during our first phone call obviously um you and i discussed and and we got to know each other but for people who um don't know you um i just wanted to start off by saying that you know we we met very briefly um earlier this summer and thank you so much for coming all the way over to geneva to meet with me and and have lunch i know it was a very hectic schedule for you but um my first question is you know, obviously, since then, you have launched officially and have, mm-hmm. done, you know, press releases and all the media outlets are, are covering uh, the Mirage. So my first question is, how have you been? Uh, it's a mix of, of feelings. Uh, on, on As you know, I mean, we've met together before the, the design was revealed and was public. Uh, so you've seen the, the, the prototype. Uh, I told you... Uh, how I was mentally ready to go to war with this uh, because I was scared of being misunderstood or yeah. criticized. Uh, nonetheless, uh, really wanted to do this project. Uh, uh, in between, we've launched. Uh, we've received uh, an amazing feedback. Frankly, this project is turning out much better than I could ever imagine. Uh, as we speak, we've allocated already three and a half years of production uh, for this piece. Uh, we produce only, we committed to produce 24 Mirage per year. So we've allocated almost, uh, what is it now? It's, 75. Uh, more. No, it's even more. We passed the 80 mark right now. 
Oh wow! Uh, so you're you're already into uh, year four allocation. Yeah, exactly. Currently, we're taking order from mid twenty six. So it's it's really, I would have never believed if someone would have told me uh, before. Um, yeah. Um, so well, I guess we'll start by letting pragmatic perspective uh, now. Sorry, you cut off a little bit. Um, yeah, but no, I said from a more pragmatic perspective now is the time where i really put my head down together with my alex and we right. focus on execution obviously so so we follow the supplier closely uh, we have multiple meetings every week to make sure everything is on track uh, because we plan as you know to ship the first pieces uh, in spring next year so in, in yeah. four months now yeah so let's backtrack a little bit um so then can you please can you give us a brief overview of um like i'm not gonna go into the creative story because you've you've shared that story many times and the press has covered it and people are talking about it so if um our listeners are interested they can just follow you on your instagram or go to like hodinky or, or um um what's another one that you did the uh, risk check to, to read about your interview or the podcast that you did with ot but i want to um talk about like can you give us a brief overview of how um, large the operation is right now, like how many watchmakers, what you're doing with the assembly, like with the suppliers, really like a timeline, because that's what's, that's what you're also doing, keeping pe- people um, on track via Instagram as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, our Instagram is basically us sharing the, the entire journey. So in a very transparent manner, it's more like a blog where we share every step of the process. Um at the moment, uh, we've slowed down communication uh, heavily because, as I said, we, we want to focus on manufacturing. This means every week I have multiple meetings to have what we call submission. So once we validated the plans and the supplier started to do the production, they have at some point to stop, present the first batch uh, and submit it for approval. Uh, mm-hmm. So I have... And on average, uh, we've accepted two thirds of the components and I have rejected uh, 30% uh, because obviously at this price point, uh, I we do not want to compromise on quality, of course. So uh, we do not fear to reject some submissions uh, and to ask for improvements. Um, and as a company, this is the, the philosophy I always had. I always told every partner I work with, I do not question the price. I do not question the deadline, the delivery date, but I will never compromise on quality. So obviously we pay uh, all components uh, a very high price because I begged, I was on my knees uh, for some suppliers so that they could work with us because I really wanted to work with these guys. They are the the best in my opinion. Uh, These guys are extremely busy. Some of them, uh, it took me six months to even convince them to to agree to work with us because their order book is full for years. Um, And as a result, sometimes the deadlines are extremely long. For example, spring bars, uh, the the lead time was 11 months to get them. That's only one example. Please Uh, tell Long Long and Daniel the story you told me about the spring bars and how people thought you were literally insane. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
so the, the Mirage, for the listeners who haven't seen the product, the, the Mirage is what we call a full gold construction. Uh, it means every component that can possibly be made of gold is in 18 karat gold. Um, I do this for two reasons. First, gold is, is extremely sustainable, so it lasts very long. You can refinish it endlessly. It doesn't involve plating, which means any goldsmith can yeah, maintain your piece for decades, if not centuries. And also for the weight, of course, I wanted to achieve a, a very thin but yet uh, heavy piece. Uh, so following this mentality and not making any compromises, I decided, okay, let's make the spring bars in gold as well. Um, so I started to make phone calls uh, and ask uh, where I could find some gold spring bars. Uh, nobody wanted to, to uh, enter into the conversation because... Uh, Every spring bars are made of steel or titanium. If you want to make them in gold, you have to swap the, the material in the machines. It's extremely heavy and complicated process. Long story short, I found a guy in the Jura to do them. Uh, and when we discussed, he, he didn't want to do the plating, the plating doesn't go away. But seriously, I'm making white gold spring bars. I had never done them in 30 years of career, and, and people won't see the difference. So, so you're just throwing money out of the window. Why, why would you do that? And he was seriously trying to convince me to, to, he was trying to save me, basically. And I told him, look, Christian, I understand the pragmatic approach, but if you don't get it, then, then just see it as an offering to God. Yeah, this is how you have to see it. And, and when you do an offering to God, you don't question the money or, or any pragmatic aspect. You, you, we have to do the best of our ability. And it's an act of love and devotion. This is why we do it. So <laughs> he was then laughing a lot. He, he, he did them. I had to wait for 11 months. Uh, and I was extremely happy to, to receive these spring bars because they are really a work of art. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a a quick question, just because I think gold is just so um, soft that, you know, just a little bang, you know, you're definitely going to get a dent in everything. Have you gotten any feedback from people who have received the pieces? Um, do they need to do a lot of polishing or what has the feedback been like? You mean the so, so far we, we... for the for the for, is the full gold? It's already released, right? The, the prototype is yeah. made, but he he didn't make it in gold just for cost uh, mm. side. But I'm sure, like Sylvan, what, when you were playing with the prototypes and working with the gold, do you, do you find it extremely, um, not extremely, but like on the fragile side? So gold is definitely softer than steel. Uh, mm -hmm. It has one benefit is that you can easily repolish it. Uh, and yeah. when I created the piece, uh, I really had in mind um, the problematic of, of the, piece, the piece lasting very long, which means I placed different finishings on the case to make sure that this piece could be refurbished easily. Mm -hmm. uh, I take a counter example. Uh, if you take a, a, a frosted royal oak, for example, once the frosted surfaces are scratched, mm -hmm. there is no way you can get back to the initial material. You have to replace the link or you have to replace the case, for example, because that mm -hmm. finishing cannot be uh, reproduced manually. 
yeah. in my case i use a mix of uh, satin brushed and polished surfaces which means even if you heavily scratch it you can always get back to the brand new stage because gold can be re-welded and refurbished so mm-hmm. of course it is a soft alloy 18 karat gold um, but it has been constructed in a very sustainable way and and this is something i had in mind since the start uh, one of my dreams if, is that in a hundred years, when I will be long gone, somebody will open a mirage to 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 do a service or to restore it or whatever. And when this guy or this girl will realize that we've done the base plate in gold, all the bridges, you know, even the buckle, the spring bar, the case, the dial, the hands, everything in gold, this person will have a good time and and. Uh, this is also why I do it because I've been like you guys in auctions. Uh, when you see a, a vintage piece from the twenties or the thirties that has survived for a century now and still looks very good, the only way you can achieve that is, is to follow a path of excellence in the entire process of the construction. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I've got a question as well. So the Mirage has got an irregular shape, and it also has a specific. A movement design for that shape the watch i think is about 55k uh Swiss yes Frank? yeah yes so i'm just thinking what is this kind of like i can't really think of another piece which has your product offering you know no and 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 frankly it is the reason why i started this project from the beginning because I have I'm a collector myself as well I collect two yeah. types of pieces uh, on one hand uh, extremely traditional round dress watches like uh, the early Longues, Breguet, uh, Vacheron, mm. Patek and on the other side I also love uh, the shaped cases of uh, Rupert Emerson and Gilbert Albert um, mm. but but these two types of pieces never meet on one side you have the shaped pieces which which have literally no watchmaking substance Movements mm. are very basic, no finishing, yeah. close substance, but the, the case design and the entire package is, is heavily rooted in, in tradition and, and therefore quite stiff. Mm. Uh, for example, I do yeah. struggle to wear some of these classic pieces on a daily routine because you know they, they, they are they start to, to lack a bit of relevance, in my opinion, especially because I dress quite casually. Mm. Um, so I, I want the piece that really the piece that. A piece that everyone's going to think about when they see it is they're going to think about the crash, right? But the crash mm-hmm. does not have a specific movement for that case. And e- even yeah. if you if you open the movement up, like you said, it's not at this kind of high horology level. Mm-hmm. And, and and so and it's funny because the, the comparison with the crash kept coming. Uh, yeah. I fully understand what they have in common is, of course, uh, uh, a deep asymmetry in the in in their package. But uh, the approach is actually the polar opposite. So the Mirage, uh, the, the crash is a free shape done by mm. Rupert Emerson. And then he left it open to the watchmaker to, feel, to fit whatever movement uh, was possible with the, the space left inside, uh, which is why the technique is heavily compromised and the ergonomics as well. Uh, all of you have seen crashes. For example, the strap hangs on the case pretty weirdly. So this is the consequence of the form mm. uh, dictating the function, so to speak. In well, my what case, I'd say, I... yeah. well, sorry to interrupt, but what I'd say is that I don't think I can wear a crash. Like, I don't think 
I can pull it off because I think it's quite a feminine piece. Um, and some gentlemen can. Our but friend, actually, I think our friend, our very close friend, pulls it off very well. Yeah. He doesn't. Let's be honest. He doesn't. And uh, <laughs> and I think I think uh, I could pull this off because I feel like it balances that yeah. like quirkiness and the regular mm-hmm. shape, asymmetric face. But then I could still wear it like properly without being it too feminine. I, I think to be fair, I think Roni wears a crash really well. But uh, not many people can pull it off. But I think this one you could. And I love the fact that you didn't compromise on the movement that that's a big thing I, I agree with you and it, and it's actually uh, so for the, the people who don't know I actually started from the movement my, my dream was to have a very thin movement and, and to not compromise its performance which is why I placed a large three days flying barrel on the main plate uh, that moved the crown axis to the bottom I also wanted a large balance wheel with a good inertia, which means uh, seven milligram per square centimeter minimum. Mm. Um, so I wanted all these aspects to have a decent movement in terms of torque and chronometry and precision, which led me to this. I had two options, either a very large movement, which would never fit the size I wanted to achieve, or I had to go asymmetric. So. Mm. This is really a new approach in the sense that the movement is technically shaped in order to achieve good performance. It's it's some sort of letting the mechanics go free, if you want. Each component takes the space it needs, and then the designer has to compose with it. When uh, And I see it uh, in, in my corporate career, when you have to stick to a round base plate, you always have to compromise because you have to fit in the circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you work with a dial designer? Because in the past, when we've um, interviewed some other independent watchmakers, they sometimes come up with one design and it goes through many versions. And then they finally decide that they're just very good at making the movement, but they need another person or a different eye to work on the dial for them. No, so I'm my my training is actually in fine arts and uh, industrial design. So I'm an industrial designer. Uh, this is what I studied. So I drew uh, not only the entire concept for the movement. So I, I came to the movement maker with the the we call it the pointage. So it's the position of each wheel on the main plate. I had froze the entire concept, and I drew the case, the hands, the dial, everything. Wow. Very I cool. even drew the the font actually for it. Even the font is bespoke for that piece, and yeah. I drew each number myself. So, well, you did that, a good job. There. I mean. You did a good yeah, job. Thank, thank you yeah. very much. It's uh, and and you know, as a designer, I look these kind of aspects uh, mainly for lack of time. You know, when you work in a in a bigger brand and stuff, you surely do not have a month to spare to draw a dedicated font. Uh, mm. But the, the the mirage is really the the dream of uh, making no compromises, uh, venturing into some products that simply could not be achieved in big brands, and it's not from a lack of resources; it's from a lack of uh, it's to avoid the pain and the struggle. And uh, for example, one point I could mention: there is a good reason why nobody makes shaped movements in the industry. It's because it's the it's the riskiest investment. It's the heaviest investment. The, the movement alone in that project represents 
uh, north of uh, 600k of investment. That's just to get the movement of the tooling to get to produce it. You need to spend more than half a million. Uh, and when you do that from an industrial perspective, um, let's say if the design doesn't work, uh, every watch brand wants to recycle the movement into another design so that you so you you want to decouple the risk from the casing to the movement. And in my case, because the movement is entirely bespoke and married to the case, if you want, this is where the risk is huge because not only the movement is married to the case, but I made everything in gold, which is why for a year and a half, every supplier uh, was telling me I had to be extremely stubborn to make this happen because every supplier was, was trying to gentle, gently advise me not to do it. So like, Sylvain, you don't realize if you don't sell this, you're screwed forever. Like, don't you want to do the movement? Even the movement maker was telling me, don't you want to do it in brass? It's fine. You know, you don't have to be so extreme. Even my mm -hmm. friends, they told me, look, Sylvain, I will forgive you if you do the spring bars in brass. It's okay. And, and I told everybody, I had to be so fucking stubborn. You have no idea. <laughs> And because even my, my good friends, you know, like, for example, Fred Mandelbaum, I've been working five years uh, with him at Breitling. We are very good friends. He was like, it's fine, you know, why do you have to be so extreme all the time? And I, and I told him, look, as I said, it's an offering to God. The goal is to do the best, the best of what I can do, you know. And if I do that, I'd rather have a pile of watches that I can't sell, but where I know I tried my absolute hardest rather than, you know, maybe also I have a pile of watches that I can't sell and I start wondering, like, what if, you know, what if I didn't take these shortcuts? Maybe it would have worked. Yeah. So. That's cool. Okay. So I've got a few questions from what you just said and from what you said earlier. So you, you've got, you're basically up to mid-2026. So how long are you going to keep going before you're going to stop taking orders? That's number one question. And number two, you just said like the movement development, you're looking at minimum 600K Swiss, you know, off the bat. So how did you raise this money, especially when you're like playing such a high risk uh, game on like, mm -hmm. you know, having spring bars in gold, everything in gold? Like, how did you have to um, like, uh, like, how did you get the investors on board if you had investors? So how did that, you know, where did you get the money from? So question one about uh, deliveries, uh, since the start, uh, and it's also displayed on our website, the, the Mirage A series, so the first iteration will be produced at the rate of 24 pieces per year for 10 years, um, for two reasons. First, uh, so in total, this is 240 calibers, which is frankly the bare minimum quantity you need to have the, the financial critical mass to, to spend the tooling. Because if I go under that, that quantity, the price becomes unbearable, frankly. And, and 55K is an expensive piece. Frankly, it is more than twice as more expensive than a Calatrava, for example. Uh, it will be a lot rarer. It is entirely in gold. So I'm still, I can live with 55, let's say. But I didn't want it to become an 80, 90, 100K piece. Um, so that's about the number. Um, we offer long-term allocations. For example, I have uh, 
right now it is five, six clients that have ordered PCs for 28, 20, for example, which is uh, something that I do a lot as a collector. I ended up saving for some PCs in the past, uh, which I didn't get once I had the money and I was extremely frustrated. So I tried to offer that service. So, so that's for the people listening to us. If you want to order a Mirage for within five years, you can get in touch with us and we'll put a piece on the side for you. Um, oh, yes. But uh, one thing I will never do is increase the quantity also. Uh, Sorry, you just cut out a very, from... a very critical point, <laughs> which was uh, <laughs> like, what was it that they, people have to do if they want to order it in like much later if they don't have the money? Was it, was, was it something you said? Like, we didn't catch it. So uh, I said, uh, okay, I, I said uh, we offer the possibility for collectors that plan their purchases to get in touch with us and say, for example, uh, I want to save the, the, the cash over five years to acquire a Mirage and we'll actually do a, what we call a long-term allocation. So we ask for a smaller deposit just to lock the papers down and then the collector can peacefully save up his money to get the piece knowing that the piece is waiting for him. Because as a collector, it happened to me, like I said, five years. And when I reached to the brand, they say, oh, sorry, we are sold out. And then that's mm. quite frustrating. Um, so that for the, the first question, so uh, 24 pieces per year, every year for 10 years. And the second question, I started my career working for BMW when I was 18 years old uh, as an intern. My first salary was 650 euros a month. <laughs> Um, and my dad told me, uh, save 30% of your salary, no matter what you make. And in 15, 20 years, you'll be able to buy a house for your family. Uh, I applied to that rule. So I saved 30% of my cash every month. Uh, and two years ago, I came to that point where I had fancy toys, uh, uh, some strong savings and I could uh, go to a bank and, and probably buy a very nice house in Switzerland. Uh, but I decided to throw all that money uh, into a watchmaking project um, with the approval of, of my wife and partner, Marie-Alix, because she could have asked me to, to spend the money uh, on a family project since we, we are married together. Uh, but she knows me very well. She knows that I'm, I would be happier even with a failing watch brand rather than a fancy house. So uh, I decided to inject uh, and to be transparent, it is 1.1 million Swiss francs of cash into this project. Um, and I knew I had to do it with my own money because I didn't want to be controlled. Uh, so I wanted to take the risk I don't think anybody would have uh, give me the cash to take so many risks. And frankly, I would not have been uh, comfortable to take so many risks with someone else's money. Because I can guarantee you now, now it is, of course, much easier to speak about it. But I had literally sleepless nights when <laughs> um, a, a, a year ago, for example, just to give you a, a very pragmatic example, I was spending every month a multiple of my salary onto production bills, a multiple like like times five. Yeah, you make you make ten 
Swiss francs and you spend 50 every month and you have to stick with that for almost a year. And so my farmer brain was completely panicking yeah, because it doesn't take rocket science to see like, okay, if I keep doing this, I will end up dead broke. So I, I really had to, to be stubborn with others, with myself. Once you push the button and the train is gone because you place the order and you commit it, then you, you, you have to stay stoic and then believe in, in what you've, you've committed on. So it's really a mental journey. It's also very physical. The, the, the sacrifice involved in terms of money, time, effort uh, is, is yeah, pretty, pretty heavy. What was it like, you know, being under that stress for a year, probably even longer, and then selling that first piece, that first collector supporting you? Do you remember it? Uh, yes, sure, I do remember it, and it's a special feeling. Uh, it allowed me to to make uh, my two first uh, collectors and, and clients were respectively Laurent Picotto for the white gold piece. Laurent saw the first prototype two years ago. I even had a prototype with a paper dial inside because I just wanted to to have a first idea. Uh, Laurent uh, was on board since the first day with this. Uh, and the second one uh, for the first uh, yellow gold piece is Ronnie Madvani. Uh, both of them believed in it very early on. Um, I'm very blessed. Uh, they will receive both of them, the first pieces in, the first piece in each metal. Uh, and it is a very special feeling. But actually, it's even more special when you get an email from someone you've never met i receive emails in uh, you know email address some emails are almost love letters and i'm very touched i have uh, i have guys who tell me uh, this piece moved me i like the details blah blah i can tell the guys spend some time reading about it the philosophy the specs uh and i can tell the he understands the the the, the effort that went into it and, and that that touched me touched me even more because it's someone I never met and, and it's really the, the work that connects us both. Can I ask like after a hundred after you like reach the limit of 24 pieces a year for 10 years, are you going to retire that model or what are you gonna do? Mm. I will disappear forever. No. <laughs> no that's All, right. The... <laughs> All right, put me down for an order then. <laughs> no, no, no. The the idea is to is to build a stable brand. Um, so for ten years we produce what is called the A series, uh, and after ten years we'll produce the B series. Uh, the B series will still be a mirage, of course. So the recipe will remain the same, but you will have incremental changes based on the experience acquired from the first series. So it's more the Rolex model, if you want. You you fine tune the model over a year over years uh, but for that you need time to have a, a feedback from the first experience which is why I, I want to go on a very slow uh, rotation if you want because I think it will give time to the product to establish itself mm. uh, because if you go too quickly you sort of dilute the design which is also why uh, and I should mention it here I declined close to maybe 40, 45 requests of limited editions, unique pieces. I had difficult discussions with some collectors who, who thought I, I didn't want to please them. Mm -hmm. um, 
but uh, yeah, as a designer, I think I think the, the more variation you do of the same thing, and actually the more you you weaken it, so to speak. Yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, hmm. I think, for example, Kari Vutalainen at the beginning he, he made so many unique pieces they weren't unique it was actually more unique to get a piece that was actually proper serial production you know and mm -hmm. all those unique pieces yeah. you know some watch collectors they should probably stay as watch collectors and less as designers uh because mm -hmm. you know some of them are just not that great yeah and it doesn't it does the word unique piece a bit of a disservice i'm not talking about jack jack's piece is obviously amazing yeah. <laughs> i mean because she knows what she's doing <laughs> yeah yeah but, uh, but i've got uh, another question about so when are you because you have like so as jacqueline mentioned another job occupation mm -hmm. when is the point going to be where you go i'm going to go all in on burner run and actually that's going to be my full-time thing when's that tipping point going to be um currently I'm, I'm on paper i'm doing 50 50 so I spent two and a half days uh, for Breitling, two and a half days for Bernerot. The weekends are added for Bernerot, so I spent four and a half uh, for my personal project. Um, one thing I should mention is none of this would have been possible if my CEO, George Kern, would not have granted mm -hmm. me the permission to do it. It's actually, believe it or not, written black and white on my contract, so I'm allowed to do this. Mm -hmm. um, it is really an exception. Uh, especially in the stiff watch industries that I work in, uh, in the fashion industry, it would have been no problem. Uh, you have a lot of creative directors that have their own label on the side and it's completely okay. But for some reason in the watch industry, uh, having that is considered as uh, ultimate uh, treason for, for some reason. Uh, so George has been... Um, extremely modern in the fact to to allow me to do something on the side and and we've received no complaints from one side or the other because everybody can see that uh, what i do at bernard is completely different uh, and it doesn't uh, compete with with what we do at brightling in any sense so it doesn't harm anybody mm. uh, yeah so but in return of that favor uh, I committed uh, with George to stay at Breitling another minimum five years. Uh -huh. uh, okay. So, because we've been working together since uh, IWC, so I've been working with George for almost 10 years now. Uh, and, and I think this is why he allowed me to do this. And then, um, so I, as I always say, business is a two way road. And, and so I also want to keep uh, developing Breitling. Uh, and ultimately, at the end, uh, probably George will retire at some point and I will jump on Bernard full time. That's the, that's the goal. Mm, okay. mm. I have a question about working um, with Breitling. You know, in fashion, you have designers that come and work maybe 10 years, right? And within that time, they work for the brand the design language is super strong. So you can be like, well, this is the time that X, Y, and Z worked at Tom Ford. This is the time X, Y, and Z worked at Gucci. And you can see the design language. And then people will collect at that specific period or they'll move on to other brands when the designer leaves. But with watches, it's really hard to identify um, the design language because you have to stick to a really strong DNA from the brand. So when you work 
at Breitling, so Monday to Thursday, or whenever the four days are, are you trying to be very disciplined? So you design following a set of rules? Or do you just think freely, draw freely, and then get people to kind of um, work around that and tweak it? So it is the, the first option. Um, and I keep repeating it to my team. Uh, I think a good industrial designer, when you work for a big brand, uh, mm. especially one like Breitling, we have next year, it's going to be 140 years of Breitling. So seven generations of designers, if there were some back then, worked on Breitling watches. Um, and I think we are here to develop the brand and support its legacy. And we are not here to please ourselves. Uh, I think mm. it would be very selfish of me to pull my own taste into Breitling. Um, I think it's the opposite. It's for me to to learn what Breitling stands for and then to play within the rule book, so to speak. Mm. Okay. And and, I, and, yeah. and for example, I'm a very yeah. different collector myself. Uh, as I told you, I collect uh, scene dress watches and shape watches. That's me, Sylvain. And when I go at Breitling, I fully embrace the technical aspect of, you know, technical pieces, titanium, chronograph, mm. all, all the technical environment of Breitling. And I play uh, within within these parameters. Mm. Okay. Mm. Uh, yeah, Daniel. Kind of, no, we just kind of skipped over it, right? Because I was listening to the story, but I just want to come back to it because I'm afraid I'll forget about it, which we need to give a shout out to your wife for being so supportive. And no matter what, like we've had some very inspirational women recently on the show, you know, Evelyn Genter. And yesterday we had like TikTok bells who were doing stuff in, you know, the lady um, watch community and, you know, all that success not many people are going to remember or notice that your wife has probably been one of the most supporting pillars to get you where you are today uh, with this watch. And this mm -hmm. watch, you know, to some extent, as much as the work comes from you, it won't exist without her support. So I think it's really important we like, well, it wasn't a question. It was just like, mm. we should acknowledge that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she actually, and she actually, she has a, a, a job as well. She's an architect. Uh, she works here in the Châtel, so she's building uh, universities and hospitals and stuff like this with her agency. Um, and we we had a very serious discussions that you have sometimes in a in a in a marriage. Mm -hmm. I told her, "Look, are you fine? If I spend being so, it's all the money I have into this watch, but all I know is that I really want to try. Are you fine with this? And and what if are you still fine if I end up being?" dead broke and her answer was even if we end up under a bridge together as long as we are together i'm fine with that so like, okay which is which is uh, and she always yeah, supported me she never questioned anything i mean we we uh, yeah so so and and she's she still helps me every weekend like like currently she's answering some of the the emails we receive she helps help me with the website she helps me with communication with uh, logistics uh, etc so, so she actually takes part into the the she's my my really my effectively my partner in this mm. i was going to also ask like out of all the pieces that are getting allocated now you probably and also you know you st just started this are you actually going to keep a piece for yourself because pre previously we like interviewed like roger smith and he's never had time to make a piece for himself so 
and you know right now where you probably want to get as much cash back as possible are you postponing that or have you reserved a piece for yourself so we have reserved a couple of triple zeros uh, for the archives <laughs> of the brand okay. uh, so that is something i will do with every piece i think it's important uh, for a brand to to remember where it comes from uh, if I ever have the chance to have a 20, 30, 40 years long brand, I would like to avoid having to beg in the auctions to get my pieces back. So I'd rather keep a, a triple zero of each metal when I can, right? <laughs> I, I have a question. Um, so we've interviewed independent watchmakers and artists like yourself and um, even in my private discussions with them, you know, you, you hear this often. I just designed the watch that I would like to wear for myself. Mm. I'm being extremely selfish. This is my watch and that's why I designed it. Um, and I wanted to ask you not, not the same question, but um, a different one, which is, you know, when you're designing this, did you have, a vision or like um, a persona of a person who would fit your watch because yeah. an ongoing joke of this podcast is sometimes you love a watch so much but then you see it on the wrong person in the wrong occasion it kind of kills it for you mm-hmm. what is that vision for you when you were designing it what's like the ideal like person that you imagine to be wearing your watch I, I'm a I'm a very bad salesman say, saying this, but frankly, I had no persona in mind at all when I did this. Uh, my mother was a painter, and she gave me a strong artistic education, and she always told me the value in any type of artistic endeavor is in is basically if you find the work good enough to show it to someone else, then this is where the value is because you cannot control the output. So I cannot, um, and, and we've seen it in, in multiple products. For example, uh, we've seen cars that were uh, especially designed for young people and old people ended up buying them. We see, we've seen a lot of products that have been designed with one persona in mind and, and the, the, the output is completely different. So uh, I, I had a very intuitive approach to this. Uh, not a persona in mind. I was just trying to, but the question I ask myself is uh, if I'm about to create yet another watch brand in 2023, which is probably the most mainstream thing that can be done these days. Mm -hmm. um, I come five centuries after the first clock, a century after the first wristwatch. Um, I should have a good goddamn reason of why people should care about this. So I didn't have someone in mind, but I knew I wanted to do something very special. And if he was not special enough, I would have not uh, pulled the trigger on this. Mm. No, that's that, that makes sense. Um, another thing that I just thought of right now, you said that 2023 launching a watch brand might just be the most mainstream thing to do. Um, <laughs> I was talking with a very well-known independent watchmaker and he, when I was touring his Italia, he said, now things might just be becoming a little bit too easy. And his brand is about 10 years old. What's your response to that statement? Wait. Which brand is that? 
a Krivia. So I agree. I, I yeah. agree that the and I had this discussion with uh, Max Busser as well with with different independents. They tell me, Silva, you have no idea how uh, easier it is for you now than it was for us ten years ago, um, because effectively uh, we've allocated three and a half years of production using uh, internet and Instagram when these guys had to rely on, on retailers and then it was much more complicated. Um, so I do agree that it gets easier. Uh, on the other hand, because it gets easier, this is why you see a new watch brand every second week these days. And, and I think, I'm not sure if this will play very well because all of a sudden you have a lot of people who, who think, oh, wait a second, I also have good taste and I, can, I have a bag of money on the side and I can make my own watch uh, but I'm not sure if, if that's all it takes I think the, the idea has to win over the execution it's not about mm -hmm. just making another product you, you have to have something that is either that doesn't exist or is better than what exists mm -hmm. Uh, and if you are in the business of making yet another round dress watch, uh, I wish to that person good luck trying to beat Patek and Longe. Huh? Good luck <laughs> with that. <laughs> mm. So you have a very like distinctive uh, model with the Mirage. Um, but what is your vision for like the brand? It's very different, as you kind of mentioned, creating a really good watch, right? Uh, but then also the brand building the brand is important to the longevity of this project and uh, for the pieces upcoming. So what is the brand trying to do? What, 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 what's your brand DNA? If I could snap my fingers uh, in 10 years, I want to develop uh, five movements in total, bespoke movements, of course, and grow progressively into complexity. For example, with a dual time, a jumping hour, either a complete or perpetual calendar uh, and a tourbillon. That would be the idea. Uh, each movement will come in with its own uh, case design, of course. Uh, and the, the, the mentality of Berneron, we call it their restricted uh, orology. Um, our mission is to venture into the corners of the creative spectrum, uh, trying to, to do things as that people haven't tried yet. Uh, I think the Mirage achieves that because you, you all of a sudden have a mix of um, asymmetry and, and the discipline of shaped cases for the first time put together with a proper watchmaking substance. In my knowledge, this is a product that doesn't exist yet. And I think this is why I find it interesting to do it. Mm. All right. So... That was going to be my last question, actually, which is how would you describe your brand DNA or the legacy that you you want to leave behind? Um, so I think that wraps up the main interview portion really, really well. And um, so one, do you have in reverse a question for each of us or how how would you like to do it? I do have a question and, and it's, and it's the, the, the same for everybody. I'd be curious to hear from your uh, collector's perspective. Uh, which brands are the most relevant today, in your opinion? Uh, because we've seen, I think we are in a very interesting moment right now in the watch industry. We see the, the, the top 10 brands getting stronger and stronger every year. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have the young, the, yeah, the, the independence going wildfire 
and in between it seems to be a desert like uh, nothing happens but uh, so, so my question to you is uh, is there any brands these days that you think uh, understands that very well and, and and why i i can go first because i've been obsessing about rich and mill for a while so especially this week like this is all i've been googling because i i just want to say that I think, I mean, even if you look at auctions, right, um, you will always have some richer mills. It's kind of become a currency, especially in Asia, well, at least in Hong Kong. Whether or not the people that buy it are like truly in love with it, but it's more of a, I mean, I think people just wear it like, oh, okay, it's a symbol of wealth and it's become something else. It's kind of replaced the gold Rolexes back in the days. And mm -hmm. I had this conversation with someone recently and said, do you think it's dumb to like get into Richard Mill again right now? And then in five years time, I won't be wearing sweatpants anymore. You know, I mean, it, it all makes a lot of sense today and it's very relevant to my lifestyle and where I live and everyone around me. And it makes sense even on a practical level. But am I going to regret this, especially this ceramic pieces or anything that is, you know, white i would say or not a precious metal and uh we both agreed like yeah it's not going to be relevant but at least for the next five to ten years it has become like a currency and it is practical in the very literal sense like you will get the most wear out of it especially where i stay in hong kong mm -hmm. yeah mm. so i interpret the question slightly differently mm. because i think like right now with way the market is going i i think you can't really go past paddock and rolex as being relevant you know because so many people enter the watch space through those brands or aspire to own those brands first so when the market isn't like as strong as it has been previously um those brands i feel like they carry you know the industry through a little bit and then I also feel non, well, not specifically maybe, but the independent watch space is like you said, is a melting pot of brands that, you know, a lot of them are probably not going to make it in the long term. You know, they might mm -hmm. make a cool watch here and there, but do they have the longevity? And I think right now, uh, a Crivio or a Recep, you know, he's kind of safe. Obviously, MBNF is probably safe. and But there, like I think Roger Smith, a handful that are very strong in that independent space. Um, but I'm not sure about the rest. So I think they're relevant because the independent watch space is, it, it I mean, it satisfies a niche, right? That is, I think, always going to be there for but then you know now those brands are developed within that space that are very very strong i mean maybe you're one of those brands too with your um irregular case designs and, and things like that because I, I can't like i said at the beginning of the show can't really see a another product offering especially at that price point which can compete so maybe you're like that every independent brand that i just mentioned has a very very clear dna you know, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, Recep, Roger Smith, MBNF, Erwerk, you know straight away it's so strong. 
and I think it, it could maybe apply to your to your brand as well. So that that's my take. I, I hope so. I will try my hardest at least. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish you the best of luck. Yeah. Uh, thank yeah. you, Dan. Um, and you, and you, Jack. I'm curious to hear your take on that. I think I think for relevance, you cannot beat Rolex. Um, mm -hmm. It's like there's no there's no question there, but because I have and I'll put on my collector's hat for for a very brief minute, because of what I like myself and what I like collecting. I obviously value Paddock um, and I, I see Paddock at a different place. And of course, with the recent industry news of, you know, like only watch and how they were going to announce a new caliber and model for the only watch in paying tribute to um, his father. When I, you know, people were talking smack and shit about that minute repeater about, you know, you don't need to see the man's face, but how cool is it? that your brand, your family is still relevant today and you're paying honor and homage and tribute to your own father who paid tribute to his father. And I think no matter how big Paddock becomes, I think they're doing an act, like the right thing to still have that familiar like root ingrained inside the brand. And I think that's very different. You don't see that with Rolex, for example. Um, so I think what they're doing is, I mean, it tugs on my heartstrings and um, I think you don't see that very often. Like you, you don't see um, <clears throat> a brand having, you know, the someone's face who's, you know, a part of the brand before, obviously him being him. Um, but aside from that, very brief comment on, on um, <clears throat> independent brands. I think we are at the, um, you know, independence brands are so hot right now that everybody's talking about it, that it's a good thing. Of course, it's like a bad thing as well. I agree with Dan. I don't think, you know, all of them will survive um, or, or, you know, have the opportunity to carry on that legacy. But I feel like having a very distinctive DNA and uh, brand characteristic is absolutely monumental in this case. So um, no pun intended for you with the case shape and everything. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a very, when we spoke and when I saw the prototype and especially when you were, even before I met you, how you were talking about the hands alignment and how you uh, put one on top of the other um, to create a thinner profile. I think you're breaking boundaries in a lot of air aspects with the all gold and, and um, the hand alignment. So um, I think regardless, Brennan or not, it's important to have a distinctive DNA and what you believe in. And I think in this case, you need to be stubborn, which you said you are. Um and and not conform so um yeah that that would be my answer yeah so it's really the two polar opposites huh? so it shows uh yeah either you have a strong legacy to to build on and you have to keep doing what you've been doing right for years or you have the duty to go in the in the path that no one walked on before as an independent and as you said this is what max and felix and and 
and Kari have been doing, venturing into the, the unknown, so to speak. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, that marks the end. <laughs> that marks the end of the interview. Um, he's hungry. Um, so yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, our time is up. Um, thank you thank you guys for listening and tuning in um if you guys are interested in learning more about the project of mirage and what's to come definitely uh just dm sylvan or or check out his website um and i'm sure as the watches start rolling out periodically starting next um quarter of 2024 um people will be posting about it and 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 discussing it so um, I'm looking forward to everything that's to come and uh, congratulations on all your accomplishments. You've made it almost, you know, you're all halfway there and mm -hmm. uh, I'm just so glad that you, you came on board to share with us your story. Thank you very much to the three of you for your kindness and uh, yeah, as a collector, it's a dream come true to be a guest on the wait list. It's, it's quite something. So what a treat. Thank you. Very, very relevant in your case, since the wait list is very Yeah. It's a pleasure right. to have you on, to have you, ha have had yeah. you on. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much, Dan. Thanks, Long Long, and thanks, Jack. All right. Thank you, guys, and, and stay tuned for the next one. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to The Waiting List Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at The Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.